Got 20 minutes? Then you have time for a Bible study. Jesus, name above all names, I worship you. Jesus, you're worthy to be praised. I worship you. Welcome to another episode of 20-Minute Bible Studies. Romans 10.17 says that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Over the next 20 minutes, you're going to hear an important message directly from God's Word and have your faith and knowledge increased. All you have to do is listen. Now, here are your teachers. When a person who doesn't believe in God argues that science explains everything, that person is expressing a conviction about the truth. Yes, and it may interest you to know, but there's a Greek word for that conviction, a word that is translated faith 239 times in the Bible. But there's only one place in the Bible where it's translated differently. I'm Andy Balog. And I'm Jordan Pine. Let's listen now to the Word of God. A reading from the Acts of the Apostles. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything that is in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made by hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might feel around for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of our own poets have said, for we also are his descendants. Therefore, since we are the descendants of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by human skill and thought. So having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now proclaiming to mankind that all people everywhere are to repent, because he has set a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all people by raising him from the dead. That was Acts chapter 17, verses 22 through 31. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. We owe today's lesson to Frank Turek and his show, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, which we highly recommend that you check out. Mr. Turek recently called attention to the Bible passages that we read today and pointed out that the word translated proof in Acts 17.31 is the same word that is translated faith more than 200 times in the Bible. Before we get into why that one alternate translation is important, let's begin, as we always do, by getting our bearings. We believe it's critical to try to take out of the Bible what God put into it, rather than reading into the Bible what we want it to say. 
That's why we created the SPACE method. SPACE is an acronym that reminds us to consider the SP, speaker, A, audience, and C, context, before attempting an E, explanation. The speaker is the Apostle Paul, God's chosen apostle or emissary to the Gentiles. And we could see why in today's passage. The audience is the leading intellectuals of the day in Greece. Before our scripture passage, we read the following. Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them, that's Timothy and Silas in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he observed that the city was full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers as well were conversing with him. So Paul was confronting the leading Greek philosophies of the day. The Epicureans were followers of a famous Greek philosopher called Epicurus. They were focused on pleasure, believing it was the highest form of good. We actually get an English word from Epicurus, Epicurean, and that means to have luxurious tastes or habits, especially in eating and drinking. The main intellectual opponents of the Epicureans were the Stoics. They were more focused on pain, believing that virtue in the face of misfortune was the highest form of good. And we get our English word stoic from this philosophy, which has this sense of enduring hardship without complaining or emotion. Paul was introducing a new philosophy to these Epicureans and Stoics, a philosophy called Christianity. The Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were intrigued because this was something new, and more than anything else, they loved to hear about and debate things that were new. And we see that in Acts 17.21. As for the context, this passage begins with Paul's spirit being provoked because Athens was full of idols. He decides that this pagan city really needs to hear the gospel. So he goes and he witnesses first to the Jews in the synagogues, as he normally would do. But then he also does something that only Paul could really do, that he was called to do. Remember, apostles like Peter and John were uneducated fishermen, but Paul was highly educated. Before he was converted, he was being groomed for the Sanhedrin and had the equivalent of what you would say an Ivy League education studying under a famous rabbi, and learning to write in both Greek and Hebrew from a young age. So he alone, perhaps, was equipped to take the gospel to what Luke in the book of Acts called God-fearing Gentiles. More than that, Paul went to the center of the Greeks' philosophical battleground. He went down to the Agora, the center of Athenian life. This was the place of the open-air market, and also where elections and legal trials were held. It was also the place for public debates. If you were a Jew who wanted to debate, you went to the synagogue. But if you were a Greek, you went to the Agora. Yes, and this eventually leads Paul to the main arena, the Madison Square Garden of debates, if you will, and it was called the Areopagus. Now, this was a high, rocky hill near the Acropolis, just below the Parthenon, and that was the giant temple of Athena back in the day. Now, the Greeks had named this place for Ares, which was their god of war. And just a side note, the Romans at the time also called it Mars Hill because Mars was their god of war. Yeah, I've actually been there, Andy, and it's quite a climb. And there's now actually a wooden cross on Mars Hill. In any case, this place of intellectual battle is where today's scripture reading takes place. 
And now we're ready to get into an explanation, the E of our SPACE acronym. Let's break down these verses. So I'll read Acts 17, 22 and 23, Andy. It reads, So Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Thanks, Jordan. So we see here that Paul was truly brilliant in the way he connected with his audience. He used their own logic as leverage to open the door to their minds and their hearts to get them to accept the possibility of there being one all-knowing, all-powerful, invisible God. He teaches them that this unknown God that they set up an altar to is the same God of the Jews now being introduced to the Gentiles as the creator of all things. And of course, once getting their attention, Paul would offer the gospel of salvation by teaching the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And then we see Paul does this again in verse 28. And a little tidbit from that verse says, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his descendants. Okay, so moving on to Acts 17, 24, it says, the God who made the world and everything that is in it since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made by hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might feel around for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his descendants. So I have a question. You know, sometimes snarky trolls will try to argue that there is just as much reason to believe in Zeus as there is to believe in our God. How does Paul contradict that claim here? Well, Jordan, my answer is this. Paul explains what makes our God unique. First of all, he is the omnipotent. He made the world and everything in it. He's the Lord over all, and that includes heaven and earth. Further, he's omniscient. He planned everything in advance, and we live and die when and where God decides. He is self-sufficient. In other words, he does not need to be served by us. In fact, God gives us everything that we need, which includes life and breath and pretty much everything else. Also, we know that God is present. He's not distant or cold. He's here close to us. And finally, God is personal. He's personal to all of us. He views us as his children and wants us to have a personal relationship with him. Okay, then moving on to Acts 17, 29. Therefore, since we are the descendants of God, Paul argues, we ought not think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by human skill and thought. You know, in Isaiah chapter 44, the prophet tells a story about a woodcutter. And here are some key points from that that passage. First, we see that he plants a tree and he watches it grow. Later, he cuts down that tree. He uses half of the wood to bake his bread, roast his meat, and keep the home fires burning, right? And then eventually he says, aha, I'm warm. I have seen the fire. And then he uses the other half of the wood to carve an image. 
He bows down and it eventually worships that image. And he prays to it and says, save me for you are my God. Yeah, I love that passage of Isaiah and I love Isaiah's sort of sarcasm there. And while Paul's argument is less sarcastic, it makes the same point. He explains, if we did not create God, but he created us, why would God be found in temples made by human hands? Yeah, great. So to that point, Jordan, let me ask you a question. Idol worship from the past seems a bit silly nowadays, right? So how might we express this argument today? I mean, in modern times. Yeah, it's a great point to ask and to bring into the practical modern day because we obviously don't have many people that still sort of bow down to to idols. And even people that come from religious traditions that have idols, they don't bow down to them and worship them in the way that people did, you know, uh, thousands of years ago. So today we might equate, you know, idol worship to a few different possible things. For example, um, we might talk about the ideas of moral relativism, which is changing human morality or standards versus moral absolutism, which is an unchanging godly standard. So if you sort of, if you sort of translate idols into moral relativism, because there were so many different idols, there was a God for everything. You could sort of just choose your God whatever fit your own personal taste. Um, you know, Paul contrasts that with our God because he's an absolute God. He's an unchang- he has an unchanging standard that we must adhere to. And, you know, the, the Greek and Roman gods, they sort of behave suspiciously like we do. They, you know, they, they had affairs and they had jealousies and they had wars. And, you know, it, they, were very, they were very human gods because, of course, they were invented by men, as um, the prophet Isaiah points out. So, you know, again, we, we have to go back to the, the very unique Christian concept that Paul is arguing uh, for here. Um, a Judeo-Christian concept, that there's one God and one absolute standard that uh, that's above human morality. So moving on to Acts 17, verse 30 says, So having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now proclaiming to mankind that all people everywhere are to repent. And then Paul says, Because he has set a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, and that's capital M in my Bible, whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all people by raising him from the dead. And it becomes clear, of course, who he's speaking about. So another question I have for you, Andy, is, you know, we've said in the past that Gentiles could not repent in the sense of turning back because they were never on the right path to begin with. But in verse 30, Paul says people everywhere can repent. And he is speaking specifically to Gentiles, the Epicureans and the Stoics again. So were we wrong about that? All right, Jordan, let me do my best here to, to try to explain this to our listeners. First of all, to, to repent in its literal Greek sense means to walk back or go back, okay? So to simplify, repent means to change your mind. Now, when addressing the Gentiles to repent, Paul is saying to go back. Do your due diligence on your religion, kind of like double-check your math, and then try again by considering salvation by Christianity. More accurately, Paul wants them to fill in all the missing gaps in their false polytheistic religious system with the one omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God and Father of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. So as for the call to repentance by, you know, in contrast by John the Baptist and Jesus Christ himself, their audience was already saved. 
because their audience was were the Jews who were created and contacted directly and supernaturally by God. Remember, he gave them the law and the way of truth for salvation. We're talking about the Jews here. And the Jews' repentance call was for them to go back to the origin of their faith, to actually cleanse their hearts in a contrite manner and follow God on the path originally intended for them. And that was, of course, a path of righteousness. So in summary, the Jews needed only clean their slate and then refocus, whereas the Gentiles had to break their old slate and then take the one offered by Paul, which made complete sense to them, and then, of course, start from scratch. Yeah, that's great, Andy. I thank you for answering that question. Of course, we do set up these questions sometimes to play devil's advocate, and um, I really love the way that you discussed that and, and talked about those differences. I think people need to understand that you know, if you, if you study the Greek original language of the Bible enough, you'll realize that there are many shades of meaning, and Paul's using a different shade of meaning, different connotation here than we use when, than Jesus used, than John the Baptist used um, in the book of John, for example. Yeah, amen to that. And it's very important that when you study the word of repentance, you, you need to understand the context, right? You need to definitely apply the space method here because you need to know who the audience is, you know, the speaker, of course, the context before you could even get into an explanation. So, you know, again, just to recap for everybody listening, it's important to know that when you're telling somebody who's a Christian that they need to repent, you're telling them that they need to reset their ways, right? And, and refocus on what Christianity is all about. Whereas if you're talking repentance about somebody who's never even heard the gospel yet, but these are people that do have a prior religion, what they need to do is repent or go back, look at what their religion has to offer and realize that it's false. And then, of course, take the right path, which is the only path to salvation, which is through Jesus Christ. Okay, so now come back to the key phrase from verse 31, which we opened with. And that phrase was, having furnished proof to all people by raising him from the dead. Again, the Greek word translated proof, remember, here is, is translated faith 239 other times in the Bible. Yeah, this Greek word, when I looked at it, Andy, pistis or pistis, reminds me of an English word that also comes uh, from the Greek, and that word is epistemology. You know, the Oxford Dictionary defines epistemology as the investigation of what distinguishes justified belief. Yeah, that's a key phrase, justified belief from opinion. And I think this is what Frank Turek was pointing out about Acts 17.31. When arguing before the leading philosophers of his day, Paul didn't offer mere opinion. He presented the proof of his justified belief, proof of his conviction about the truth, proof that God had given to all people, raising Jesus Christ from the dead. Okay, Andy, the last thing I wanted to do before we go is I wanted to explore a little bit more Frank Turek's point in saying that Christians need to keep in mind that when we say we have faith, we don't mean blind faith. We mean a conviction about the truth backed by evidence. And of course, you know, one way to look at that question or one way to address that question is to talk about all the archaeological and uh, literary evidence that supports the Bible. The Bible is such a well-established historical document that, of course, even people who don't believe um, you know, in the underlying truths of the Bible cite it, they quote it, they use it to inform what they know about various histories. So it, it goes beyond 
um, ju- just a book for a, re- a religious or holy book for people of the Christian faith and the Jewish faith, and it actually is an historical document. So there's that kind of evidence. And what what other kinds of evidence um, can we point to uh, when we say we have we don't just have blind faith; we actually have a conviction that's backed by evidence? Yeah, Jordan, that's actually an awesome question. And what I'd like to do here is just kind of dig these answers out to your question and um, by using scripture itself. And what we see here is that that these verses I'm going to pull out actually make up the ABCs or foundation of true biblical Christianity. So here's some what I would call hard evidence. And first, let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, which reads, All scripture is inspired by God and beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness. Next, we're going to read Romans chapter 10, verse 9. And that reads, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Next, we're going to look at Romans chapter 10, verse 17. And that reads, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Next, we're going to read Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, which reads, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for the one who comes to God must believe that he exists, and that he proves to be one who rewards those who seek him. Next, we're going to go to the tried and true, John chapter 3, verse 16, and we're going to finish at verse 19. And that reads, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. The one who believes in him is not judged. The one who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Moving on, we look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. And those verses read, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And finally, we go back to John chapter 3, verse 36. That reads, The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So Jordan, the purpose for me quoting all these verses is again to show the foundation or the building blocks, if you will, of Christianity. This historical document, the Bible, is where we get our faith from. It's what has lasted and has been passed on for thousands of years. And believe me, it's no coincidence that it's lasted this long. And we're thankful to God that we get a chance to read these words and believe in these words. And because we know these words to be true, we know that our salvation is secure. Thanks, Andy. That's 20 minutes and that's our lesson. Thanks for joining us for another 20-minute Bible study. Special thanks to the family of Pastor Gary T. Whipple. Our music was recorded by the Abundant Life Worship Center.
Our sound editor is J.P. Eli. I'm Steve Zioli, and until next time, may the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Reserved Mysteries of the Kingdom Incorporated.